0: The Water Values Podcast, Session One Hundred Four. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now,
1: here's your host, Dave McGibbons.
0: Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. We've got a great show for you today. We've got Steve Baker uh, who's going to talk with us about spreading groundwater knowledge. He's uh, got an outfit called Operation Unite and he runs a program called the Know Your Water Program. It's about uh, educating people about, how to, about their groundwater, its characteristics and you know how you can modify behaviors in order for you to uh, optimize your groundwater usage so it's primarily from uh, people who have wells but it's a great you know steve's a great uh, uh speaker for us today i think you'll really enjoy what he has to tell you uh and before we get into the uh, into the program uh just a few you know, standard housekeeping things first off uh if you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, in whatever uh, podcast directory you listen to the program on. Also uh, please consider making a donation to keep the lights on here at the water values podcast. There's a little uh, yellow donate button on the WaterValues.com. You can just click on that in denominations uh, of whatever you see fit. So I would really appreciate your support. Thank you so much. Uh, and some other housekeeping is uh, you know, I've, I've received a number of emails over the past couple of years uh, about the podcast, but I, I, I got one from um, Adrian Marziliano who is on a transcontinental bike ride. He, he's riding his bike from Santiago, Chile, all the way up to Toronto, Canada. And he, he, he emailed me um, while he was in Texas on the last leg of his trip. Isn't that amazing that from Texas to Toronto is the last leg of a uh, a trip that sounds like uh, more than I can handle just on its own. But in any event, I got a, uh, a great email from him that says, uh, he started listening to the podcast about a month ago. Uh, it's an amazing source of information and inspiration for me. I'm currently on a transcontinental bicycle ride from San Diego, Chile to Toronto, Canada support to support palliative care programs for cancer patients. Um, and, uh, if you get the newsletter, um, I put a blurb in there about it. I've linked to uh, an interview with Adrian so you can find out more about uh, his ride. But in any event, you know, Adrian was very generous uh, to provide a donation to the podcast and sent an incredibly nice email. Uh, and, you know, he's looking to get into water when he's done with his bicycle ride. So I think this is – this is Adrian's just a great guy. All right, and the last bit of hi- housekeeping is uh, – uh, I promised a a listener that I would answer the question uh, of you know a, a little about my background and how I got interested in water. And I think for the for the larger version, I, I say you can go to the website and click on the about me, and that kind of gives that kind of gives a broader version. But I first really got interested. I, I mean, you know, I grew up in Olympia, Washington, and uh, you know, everyone says it rains out there all the time, but you know, I I, I do remember. Uh, rain. And I remember the rivers and I remember hiking up to Lena Lake. And I remember going up to Mount Rainier and doing all those great, great things out there. But I really never uh, thought about water too much until I I really, until I became a lawyer and uh, I started uh, practicing utility law. And then I started representing water utilities and wastewater utilities. And, you know, I I was involved, I've been involved in stormwater systems and so uh, that's really how I started to appreciate how significant a role water plays in our society. And that's, that's really where my interest uh, took off in water issues. And so I, you know, as I think I said in the, uh, the podcast uh, where Matt Klein interviewed me, that, you know, when we moved out to Colorado, I essentially um, uh, got a new car, was able to finally plug my phone into the car so I could start listening to podcasts on the way to and from work. And uh, I looked around for a water podcast, couldn't find one and the water values podcast was born. So that's, that's the, the nuts and bolts of uh, a little about my background in terms of how I got interested in water. And so I hope that satisfies you. If you, if you want to know more information, just send me an email and I'll, uh, I'll try to answer it uh, uh, in a little more depth, but you can also check out the dot com on the about me uh, uh, page for that. Uh, one more um, cautionary note before we get started is that uh, when, when we recorded the interview with Steve, uh, it came through only as mono. And so I, I did my best to try and figure out how to make it stereo. And so I think, I've, I, think I, I got it to be stereo, but I think the balance might be a little off. So you may have to adjust your, if you have balance, you, you may have to adjust it because I think it's going to be louder in your left ear than it is in your right. Uh, so apologies for that, but that's just kind of one of the, the technicalities of uh, uh, the, the, the process that I may not fully grasp in terms of how to convert mono to stereo and get it the balance right. But in any event, apologies for that, I th- and Steve still provides you fantastic information. I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast. So open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Steve, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad to have you on. I know it's bright and early for you out there in California. Uh, uh, For for starters, how about telling us a little about uh, your background and how you got interested in water?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, Dave, uh, it's wonderful uh, spending this time with you. I don't know if you realize this, but I've already spent a ton of time with you listening to your other podcasts as I travel around the country myself. Hey, I... uh, I got a degree in geology from Ohio State back in the 70s, and and uh, it was funny. There was one class I had dropped the class, and uh, I was working in the geology department as a, an assistant. And one of the master's degree fellows said, "Hey, you ought to take a hydrogeology class. That you might. I think you'd be good at it." And so I did that, and that was that turned out to be my best, most favorite class of of all of them. So when I got out of school, came out to Colorado, lived in Denver. I uh, decided to, to look for a job with a water resource uh, company, which I found, and uh, hey, I've been in water ever since. It's <laughs> it's a great uh, applied science. Uh, that's what I like the most about it. You actually use your hydro your, your geology background to make uh, very positive changes to help all of society uh, benefit from the the qualities that we have uh, with water <laughs> in our lives.
0: Yeah. So how do you get from Colorado to California, where you are now?
1: Well, you know, in the mid 80s. Uh, Colorado went through a real tough spell as far as natural resources went. And jobs for geologists went by the wayside. Now, I had uh... in my latter part of working with this consulting firm in in uh... colorado i <laughs> in a very serendipity way i became project manager of a huge pollution problem that was being dealt with in north Glen, colorado it was one of these things that got into the wall street journal it was it was pretty big time a, a civil action suit against some petroleum companies and so my experience level although uh, i came in as green as you can be i gained a ton of experience so I ended up leaving when there was no longer uh, really very many jobs at, for a geologist in Colorado, and I came to California uh, with the intent of uh, getting, you know, catapulting myself into the new regulations that California was was beginning to uh, experience at that time. So that was around 1985 and um, and and at that time the underground storage tank regulations kicked in out here in California the surface impoundment issues of course cercla superfund sites that was big time and uh it just it just snowballed and so uh i ended up uh, incorporating a company hydro solutions of california which i had for 29 years uh here in california and was involved in a lot of uh pollution liabilities affecting real estate but through that process, I also really had a strong interest in water resources, in particular uh, the domestic resources that uh, we, we see so frequently uh, spread across our nation, those uh, people on water wells. So that, that's how I got here.
0: Yeah. So uh, tell me a little about what you're doing now. I mean, you kind of you hinted at it with the water wells, but what 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 are you doing these days?
1: Well, I started a uh, an initiative called Operation Unite. It's about it's a, a hands-on type of type of company, and we are all about uh, building public responsibility uh, with the public on solving water issues. So uh, uh, it's it's eighty percent PR, twenty percent technical. But being a hydrogeologist, I focus more on water issues right now with Operation Unite, and. A few years back, I actually more than that, more like 10 to 12 years back, I actually did a 10 year uh, fractured rock aquifer study because uh, I live in both worlds. I study, I study groundwater, but I also live off a well. So we're up on 10 acres here in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And, and I did this study for 10 years where I uh, placed data loggers in a number of different active domestic wells analyzing it with the intent of Identifying whether or not there truly are vulnerabilities up in these, these areas, um, with the fractured rock aquifer type of, uh, water supply, and, um, and that has turned into a very uh, very significant program. We, we named it the Know Your Water Program, and the intent of this program is to help people manage their water supplies, uh, whether it's drought, uh, overuse, whatever, or, or just normal conditions. Uh, we we uh, give people the information they need. We teach them how to use that information, and they make all the decisions, and most of the time, they make very good decisions. We're, so we're enabling them with the information they need so that they can actually do quite well in a, in a future that has uh, water in it still, but uh, a lot more variable than it has been, in, in, at least in your lifetime and mine.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I'm really looking forward to talking with you about this program. Real quick before we get into that, uh, you mentioned a, a fractured rock aquifer. Can you, For those who might not know what a fractured rock aquifer is, can you kind of let us fill us in on the secret?
1: Oh, you betcha. Uh, generally, we talk about two types of aquifers in the world of hydrogeology. And one it would be uh, if you were to, uh, to think about a bathtub that's filled with sand. And the, uh, then you fill that bathtub that has sand in it now with water. So uh, that happens to be a porous aquifer. Now, a fractured rock aquifer is a little different. It's, you know, imagine taking a massive piece of rock, and then you break it, and now there's some fractures in that rock water will occupy those fractures only. The rest of the rock is impervious to, to water. So so in a situation where you have a fractured rock aquifer system, the water, the precipitation, ends up percolating into those fractures and filling those fractures. So when a domestic or industrial or a municipal uh, 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 person drills a well into that type of material they are extracting water only from the fractures and that's why we call it a fractured rock aquifer
0: okay got it got it so uh, on to this uh, onto your know your water program um, uh, mm-hmm. you've kind of given us a very high level look at it so if if I was interested in using the program what kind of what and I came to you and said hey you know I've, I've got a well I really don 't know anything about it what what is what is your program going to do uh, for this for this well user?
1: Well, it it actually does a, a number of different things. the The program helps the person look at their lifestyle and see how it affects that uh, their well. And uh, the, the the idea is if people understand the uh behavior of their water well based on their lifestyles and also based on uh, how mother nature brings water into the system then during the hard times when we have drought and as you know we've we just passed through a six-year uh, duration drought right here in california um, you will be able to this person would be able to manage themselves because we can't control Mother nature, but we most certainly can c- control our own behaviors when we're using the resource of groundwater and so again we're providing the information through data loggers, pressure transducers uh, sometimes uh, we use uh, uh, the more the sonic the acoustic type Type device to measure water levels, high resolution of data. Uh, we interpret it a number of different ways. We we uh, we interpret this data on a yearly basis for each individual, and we have a consultation with them to uh, ex- to describe what it is we're observing, and then we we talk we discuss how they will be managing their water in that next season that's coming out that next summer, that next spring, summer, and fall. And so uh, the idea is within uh, five years or between five and ten years, they will be, have have been given a lot of instruction and we will have discovered many of the trends of that particular well with their behavior and they will be quite uh, Effective in managing their their water supply, so we essentially we wean ourselves of of supporting them. However, if, if something uh, unusual happens, uh, let's say a really serious drought they've never experienced before, new conditions were showing up in their well, they may call us back. But uh, I'm hoping that for the most most part, that people will learn uh, an abundance of information about their their well and how the water uh, fills that well and, uh, and be able to make these adjustments through time.
0: Yeah, so it sounds almost like big data on a small scale um, is what you're kind of you're, you're presenting to these uh, users of the Know Your Water program. Um, as they are, you know, with, with all the different measurements you're taking and things like that, they're figuring out, I, I assume this is seasonal as well. Um, there are seasonal variations for how the, how the water fills the aquifer or,
1: it it really depends on where your uh where you're located and how the wells constructed. Uh, I have seen some wells where their uh, most wells seem to have seasonality in the in the water and uh there are some wells that do not. They seem to be somewhat stable all the time. Um even that uh that certainly tells you something about the vulnerability of that well to losing its water, its source of water. Uh, uh We have referred many a times to the hydrograph. In other words, uh, if we were to plot through time the depth to water and just watch that and then sit back in your chair and look at that graph after four or five years, you'll notice uh, some familiarity, uh, a uniqueness to how that – that uh, those water levels bounce back and forth through through the years and we refer to that as the personality of the well and once you identify the personality of the well you you then can start uh managing it in a fashion it's more predictable there's more certainty and uh, that makes you quite strong in your ability to manage the manage the supply
0: yeah yeah so um so, the hydrograph is one of the the key data points or the key uh, uh, data data sets that you get out of the program what What are some of the other data sets that that are uh, important you 've kind of mentioned you, you yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, yeah, we're, you know, it's all about water, right? So when uh, when we're trying to help somebody who has a domestic supply, we want to help them have a diversified supply because sometimes one well has a vulnerability that keeps showing up. And so we're trying to encourage on a yearly basis with the Know Your Water members, uh, rainwater harvesting. Uh, We want to encourage them to really consider, uh, after looking at their county regulations, the uh, maybe modification of their plumbing so they benefit from gray water. Uh, we want them to be uh, to recognize the uh, negatives and positives of using septic systems. So all these things are, are being addressed as, as as we go through each year. And there are water quality indicators that we look at every year that would suggest uh, maybe a more expanded set of analytics that we would run uh, at. A cost uh, to look, say, at arsenic or or some other things that we're concerned about. Certainly here in the Sierras. So there there are a lot of different things. We even developed something called a lifestyle well test, where we look at high resolution the behaviors of what's happening inside and outside the house with what's happening in the aquifer down below.
0: So and and yeah you you this is the second time you brought up the lifestyle test. I assume that has something to do with uh you know let's look at where you are in life uh what your water usage is uh and compare that to what the the uh the, the safe yield or so of the the aquifer is.
1: Right? Uh yeah well we you know a lot of people in my refer non-technical to terms he, well, actually, the the safe yield uh, seems to be a technical term <laughs> these days. It has been, but you know what? In a fractured rock aquifer system or any system, really, it's it's really very difficult to identify what that sustained yield is. Uh, there are so many uh, variables; we never really know as hydrogeologists. we can we can we can measure re, uh, uh, recharge into the groundwater system, but you know, really, it's a best guess. It's we don't know that much. And then when you're talking about fractured rock aquifer systems. Oh, it's even more nebulous. So uh, a a safe yield is a very, very difficult uh, uh, concept to really grasp when really it's dependent upon how much you're pumping is going into the ground, how much is coming out of the ground, where all the stresses are, uh, what the changes in storage are. All this happening very dynamically as a dance, as a choreographed dance at the same time. So uh, what we decided uh, uh, a while back is, you know what? we could be guessing forever but the, and and that may or may not help people but what will help people the most is to just give them the information they need about what's happening in real time in this in their particular aquifer and then show them how their behaviors can actually make life better in the aquifer so if it starts if we start seeing in decreasing trends yeah oh my god my my well is drying out then they will have the ability and and also the discipline to make adjustments in their water use during that period of time and avoid actually experiencing a dry well Hmm. that's that's how this thing uh uh, developed
0: yeah yeah so uh, have you when you've talked with your with the, the people that are participants in the program uh, what are some of the factors or what are some of the behaviors they've modified, uh, you know, when, when the, the data from the well is showing that they, they need to modify certain, you know, modify their water use?
1: Well, Dave. I mean, you and I both know, and as well as probably most of the listeners, that outdoor water is the most water. So, if you're going to save your, if you're going to reduce your water use, let's let's go outside and decide what part of the uh, outdoor landscape we're not going to be uh, putting water. We're going to focus our water on 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 only small on smaller areas during those kinds of times, uh, which which really, I mean, people spend a lot of money on landscapes, so uh, it, it can be hard to decide on not watering. Uh, a certain part of the property, but our suggestion to people is build tenacity and flexibility into your your uh, your property and landscape, and have the types of uh, of uh, vegetation that you can actually take off the water sometimes you know don't not water it so that during the low times you know just as hey when the, when the money's big time and we're really really having a, a wonderful success and abundance in in and um, making some dough making some money uh, we we spend the money but if we don't have it we just you know, back off. We don't spend it for a while. We try to save more, and and we move on. Well, it's the same with water. So, so really, outdoor water is stressed quite a bit. I mean, we want to see uh, people slowly improve the appliances in their homes so they're more efficient. I mean, there are some wonderful products that have been coming out on washing our clothes. That uh, I mean, there's a brain in that washing machine, and it, <laughs> it uses the least amount of water to get the job done. Uh, likewise, you know, habits. Habits is a big thing. Probably the most difficult thing. Uh, uh, in our household, we have some long runs. So when we want hot water in the wintertime, you know, potentially we could leave the, the uh, you know, the water on for a while for that uh, for that cold water to go away and the hot water to arrive in the kitchen or to the you know the restroom on the end of the you know at the at the other edge of the house. So those are the kinds of things that we we are hoping that uh, we will stimulate in people to make changes on to uh, to improve their water efficiencies. I mean uh, places like Las Vegas have just shocked us. I sat down with Pat Milroy one time and she uh, explained to me that that uh, they have reduced their water their their uh, gallons per day per person uh, hugely uh, because they had to. And uh, people were educated in in a different way than the Know Your Water program, but you know it's an urban situation. But still, uh, that's how you do it. You just uh, the people who are using the water become the most important part of the managers of that water
0: yeah that's right and I, th- I think you know knowledge is power, and I think you're doing a great job uh, helping people f- you know f- manage their water use by providing them with the, the information needed to do so uh, you've You've mentioned a, a lot of stuff i th- I think that I'd like to get into you first off, you mentioned the the benefits and dangers of a septic system uh, for for those areas can you can you expand upon
1: that please? Uh, yeah, you know, septic systems have been used for a very long time and, and, um, and uh, during that course of time, there have been an, an increasing number of people using those septic systems. And many a times those same people are putting in new wells. So there's a well on a property and there's a septic. Well, well, once, once you, you increase your density to a point, certainly in a fractured rock offer environment, the probabilities of maybe having some uh, contamination occur will will increase. And so, um, number one, we need to educate those living in the more rural residential environments to be careful what they put in their, you know, flush down their toilets and everything. Uh, We don't want to use chemicals. Uh, Unfortunately, many of us use chemicals in the form of pharmaceuticals, and many of those pharmaceuticals do not biodegrade with the microbial, uh, uh, the diversified microbial populations that exist in the ground. And so, you'll see Prozac. You'll see different things that uh, show up in the groundwater because they were never treated through that septic system. Uh, I mean, the best encouragement that I can pass on to uh, uh, people who have septic systems and, and, and wells also is to make sure that uh, you're aware of what you put down the drain, number one and number two. You know, every three to five years, have that s- septic tank uh, cleaned up so that you don't have uh, uh, you know uh, problems developing in your in your leach field.
0: Right, right. And how how does the uh, septic tank affect groundwater recharge?
1: Well, you know, one, one wonderful thing about septic tanks uh, and, and their leach fields is uh, once that black water goes out into the leach field and percolates in the ground, uh, that volume of water actually is something like 85% of what was actually uh, traveling through the household. So 15% of that water actually gets consumed. But the rest of it goes back in the ground again. But interestingly, in a fractured rock aquifer system, you can't expect that 85% that goes back in the ground again to get to the same fractures that your well pulled from. In my case, uh, I'm on 10 acres up here in the Sierra Nevada Mountains, beautiful place. We have a a 300-foot well. Well, production is around 250. So... My leach field is probably hundred yards from my well, and my leach field is at about four feet <laughs> below ground surface, not 250. Right. So the likelihood of the water that is recharging and replenishing through our leach field is uh, very low on actually reaching the same fracture system. It'll go somewhere. Most of the time, it stays in the more surface, uh, you know, more superficial uh, fractures, and then probably will daylight somewhere down gradient. I mean, we have a lot of topographic you know relief some drop here so it may show up in the creek down below it could could you know get down there a little ways probably a very small amount of it will go all the way but it takes a while uh, they age dated I, i've actually uh, through the u.s geological survey we've age dated some of the water out here and um as i recall 15 year age water and 46 year old water is what we've measured in in these in this area that i live in wow So it Uh, takes a long time. (laughs) So don't expect recharge to happen soon. Uh, Again, that's why it's important that we manage our supplies on a moment by moment basis.
0: That's that's exactly right. So um, when, when you first start off, uh, what kind of wellhead survey are you doing in order just to kind of, you know, kind of get the ball rolling on, on the data gathering and uh, initial, you know, field work.
1: You know, when I, when I, when I'm sitting down with somebody in the very beginning, uh, in, in formulating this, they've already come on board. We, uh, we, of course, we take pictures, we GPS the location of the well. One of the things we attempt to do is uh, all all data is confidential, but we 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 want to be able to use that data in a more uh, uh, generic, uh, protective fashion for regions, so that if there are some trends, positive or negative, showing up in a region, that we can we can go ahead and report that to. To, uh, uh to you know uh, let people know that, that that exists in a portion of the of the uh landscape so that people are more aware and take precautions to uh prevent Losing of wells or, or water quality issues from uh, affecting their households. Uh, we we actually do a wellhead survey where we're looking for leaks. We're, we're looking for how that system works. We even we even uh, most people don't know. I mean, they pay attention to their wells when they first buy the property, but then after that, it's kind of just sort of there. And every so often, they might have a, a pump driller person to come out and work on it, but but they don't really pay attention again until they sell the property. Okay, and there may be twenty years in between, so. So what we try to do is... Um uh, we actually map out so they understand how their systems work. Uh, case in point, where again, where we live here in the Sierras, we have we have uh, a lot of time. Uh, uh, we have acidic water. Uh, our pH on our water supply is 5.6. It's pretty acidic, so we, we treat it. Well, you know, there's extra piping in the system that uh, that uh, you need to to do that. And uh, sometimes there are other things that people, other filters, people's uh, people have in their system. So we we actually draw arrows and and. Uh, document at their wellhead or wherever their treatment system is exactly how that water is flowing. So they start to understand. Again, we want to build resilience by helping people understand what they're, what's going on with their own water systems. And uh, so we, we, we do that as well. Now, there's a sister, there's a brother-sister sort of program. Know Your Water Program is all about helping people make good decisions on their own property. Okay. And we've been talking about that now for a while. But the other part of it is, and I'm sure you'll, agree with this is, you know, groundwater doesn't, uh, it doesn't look at political boundaries. It doesn't stop at uh, your neighbor's boundary coming onto your property. It just goes. It's, It's high pressure to low pressure. So we created something called the Neighborhood Water Alliance. And that program essentially gets neighbors together. So that they are focused and united in a fashion that, that uh, they, their, their purpose is to develop water contingencies and water alternatives. If uh, somebody's well in the neighborhood goes bad, they, they pull together and they work it out so that that, that family who just lost their water supply can at least uh, make it through the dry season for six months. I mean, it's up to the neighborhood water lines as to the criteria that they establish, but, but uh, it's the idea is, we are much stronger as a group than we are as individuals because we know that each well has a vulnerability. All wells have a vulnerability. So if we pull together all of our wells and other, other uh, options that we, ch- we choose for ourselves, then our vulnerabilities go down hugely and we'll be okay but our strength is in working together. And so the Neighborhood Water Alliance helps neighborhoods do that, get together. And if I was to hypothetically say, oh my gosh, well, let's use my <laughs> where I live, okay? There's, you know, maybe 60, 70 parcels, and I'd say uh, maybe 25% of those parcels are occupied. Of that 25, maybe only 3% of the people want to be in the Neighborhood Waterlands program. Well, that's okay. They do it. They're the ones that help each other. But as the other neighbors see the benefits gained by working together, you will see through time more people Coming together under a neighborhood water alliance and uh, safeguarding one another, protecting one another, helping one another. So again, Operation's mission is to bring people together to solve water problems. That's why I created it. So uh, this would be a, a a nice example of how that works. So if you're trying to solve a water issue, a groundwater issue, whether it be fractured rock aquifers or, or the more or the porous ones, um, our belief is that we go after it on an individual by individual level. We go after it from a neighborhood type level. We go after it at the community level. You need the resolutions at those different levels so that you can actually get the job done because the dynamics are different at different levels. And when we don't address it, as most of the time we don't, we find that maybe it works at one level, but we're beating each other up at the, at the, at the other level. So uh, again, we try to to go after solving these problems with, uh, by focusing on, on these different resolutions solution programs
0: yeah i mean I, I think it's it's very interesting you were kind of in the neighborhood program uh, it sounds like you were describing kind of a free rider pr- problem at the beginning where you know only a certain percentage were on but but more of them are seeing more of these you know quote-unquote free riders were kind of seeing the marginal marginal benefits of joining the program and it 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 reached a tipping point where they they ended up joining at least that's what it sounded yeah.
1: like Yeah, that's, that's what happens. But, you know, you never get everybody. I mean, it's a bell curve. (laughs) You know, some people that think, well, I'll just, I've got money. I'll just pay for whatever I need. And others think, well, yeah, I'm not paying anything. (laughs) You know, you're just going to have to take care of me. Sort of an entitlement. So you, you get it. You know, people are people. You you get everything. But, but if we're strong in that middle part of that bell curve, we'll be okay in the long run.
0: Right, right. You'd also mentioned California has just come through the six-year drought. I'm just kind of curious, generally, what what have you seen in terms of groundwater uh, uh, during the the California drought? And, and I'd appreciate it if you'd also kind of preface this uh, with the question, with an answer to a question I should have asked earlier: Is like what part of California? You said the Sierras, but what part of California is that? Just, just- for, yeah.
1: I was okay, just go going to mention that yeah I'm I'm located in the Sierra Mountains outside of Sacramento so we're northern California and very interestingly Dave um uh, I I did quite a few round roundtables uh, during the course of this uh, on our on radio during the course of this uh this drought that we had and what we experienced uh, through the driller's perspective and also through the water trucker Perspective and, and the county is really not that much of a problem in Northern California wells. I mean, very, it was almost non detectable. We went for, you got to remember though, in Northern California, in the Sierras, we received anywhere from 50 to, believe it or not, this year, that's uh, upwards of 90 inches in one year. And most of that comes within a six month period of time. Okay. So when we were in a serious drought uh, in the last six years, it was a type of, uh, Drought that still produced water for us, uh, Northern Californians. Okay, we so we had 30 to 32 inches instead of the 60 inches average here. Well, evidently that was still enough to uh, handle the balance between water use with the the population that exists up here and what water was being delivered by Mother Nature. But then, if we were to travel to the uh, more southern portions of the foothills of the Sierras in California, so now we're talking about driving probably about five, probably six, six and a half hours south of where I am in Northern California near Sacramento, you'd end up in Porterville. Well, Porterville, California really had some serious, serious problems and continues to have, well, it, it's continues to have problems in some of the, those areas, although their issues were, they were extremely vulnerable because their wells were shallow. And those shallow wells were penetrating a porous aquifer, an alluvial aquifer, in other words, a, an aquifer system, uh, a water-bearing formation that actually was connected to surface water flows. And during the course of our very serious drought here in California, those surface water bodies were no longer uh, uh, filled with flowing water. And so, as one would expect those wells went dry, and a lot of wells, and these are people who don't have a lot of money, and so they couldn't just go out and drill wells, and in many cases, the people that uh, lost their water supply, they're just renting. It was the owner of the property that didn't have enough money to put in a new well. I mean, wells are, you know, wells can be expensive, and so um, it really created some emergency situations for uh, many of our citizens here in California, and our counties uh, or uh, the church organizations, the state, uh, they all jumped in. In fact, there are people across the country that that threw money and bottled water and a number of things to help uh, uh, communities like Porterville make it through. So uh, the conditions changed dramatically. And in California we have we have the Cascade Range mountains right we have the Sierra Nevada mountains we have the transverse mountains we have the peninsular mountains then we have these flat areas like the Central Valley where everyone has heard about uh, that's where all our food comes from and their their aquifers are drying out uh, we we have the uh, Modoc Plateau we have the areas where it's a huge expanse of desert areas where we have uh uh, uh volcanic old volcanic uh uh, sediment that the water occupies deep in the ground. Those are fractured rock environments as well. So California is loaded with different geology, and with different geology comes different hydrogeologic circumstances. So the, the problems that, that we experience in different locales in the state of California vary hugely, and that's why we feel that we, we need to attack these problems and solve them on an individual level, neighborhood level, and community level.
0: Yeah, one size does does not fit all. Um, so, th- w- real quickly, one thing I wanted to follow up on is, as you you indicated, these the porous rock aquifer that were con- that was connected to the surface river flows or the surface water flows, uh, those are more susceptible. Yeah, down to Porterville. Yeah, down to Porterville. Those are those were more susceptible to the drought rather than the fractured rock because the the, the water doesn't travel as easily in the fractured rock. Am I uh, fractured rock aquifer? Am I getting that correctly? So you weren't as vulnerable. <laughs>
1: No, we can't really say that. Okay. Uh, the, 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 uh, the water – if I was to I'm, – I'm just guessing because I didn't actually test. It's okay. But if we had age-dated the water in some of those wells that are 30 or 50 feet deep down in Porterville, we would, probably would have found that there's year – one-year, two-year, five-year-old water down there. But the travel path taken uh, in many of the wells of, of the water getting to the wells uh, up here in the fractured rock environments of the Sierras in northern California, it takes 15 to 46 years. And according to USGS, there are places that are about 100 years so it takes longer. Well, because it takes longer, that actually is a good thing in a sense. It's, you're not going to feel this six-year drought if the water took 50 years to get to where it's going. But, um, but then think about it. If it takes that long, if you're, if you're pumping so much that you're dewatering that aquifer, it's not going to come back anytime soon. And, hey, case in point, I think I remember in some of your podcasts, you lived in Colorado. You lived in the Denver Basin, the Front Range. So you know that the water occupying the Denver formation, the Arapaho, the Laramie, Fox Hill, all that stuff, that's old water. That was that was that got into the ground when the glaciers existed ten thousand years ago. And so we are pumping th- water out so quickly in those areas that it's not coming back. We need to find a water, another a water alternative, something else, another source. So you have to look at those kinds of things. If we if we were to compare the Porterville water, they were very susceptible, I think, because of their closeness to the ground surface and also the uh, hydrogeologic connection between. Between those those creeks and stream beds and those wells, yeah, as compared to up here with the fractured rock offers,
0: right. And and how would the data that you're collecting for these wells? How how would that? How would you be able to in, determine whether or not you're mining well, the aquifer? The great.
1: Uh, well, you'll look. You'll look at trends. You will look at trends with the water levels, and you will you will compare those trends in. Uh, of water levels in the wells with precipitation episodes. And in some cases, you can see delayed reactions. What we've noticed in some of the fracture Rock aquifer systems is uh, the uh, case in point, uh, there's one well I'm re- thinking of right now. It's my own. <laughs> it's a, you know, 250-foot well, right? Okay, water's at 120 in October, 120 feet below ground surface in October. And it starts raining. You know yacht here in California it starts raining anyway, you know, October, November it starts to rain a bit. Well, we ended up with seventeen inches accumulating through December thirty first. Every year it's kinda like that. And that groundwater level continues to drop during that period of time. And then right around New Year's suddenly the water level recovers in the well. And it recovers all the way up to twenty feet. And then after that, there seems to be a lag time of maybe four days to a week in response between precip episodes and what's happening in that well. And what that told me is uh, that, you know, we, we, we actually have a very vulnerable well here. We're, we're not in good shape. What's happening is the way the wells are made in fracture rock environments here in California is we have a sanitary seal that's probably 25 feet deep. Below that, it's open hole. And so what probably happened is it took three months to fill up the fractures from the rain, uh, the fractures that, that were showing up in our well at more shallow depths. But once those fractures were filled... Then they started flowing, happened to be December 31st, and it filled up the well, leaving the impression that, oh, my God, we have a wonderful well here, when in reality, that's temporary water. I mean, very temporary, and uh, our main production really is at 250 feet, which is a a, 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 a water that's quite different in quality and, and quantity as compared to that water that comes in more shallow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Steve, this is absolutely fascinating. I, uh, I've, I've learned a tremendous amount from you and I really appreciate your time and, and, uh, uh, you've been absolutely great. I've, I've loved listening to you. And so, uh, for those folks who, um, who want to find out more about you and the know your water program and operation unite, where can they go to find that information?
1: Well, we're very easy to get a hold of. Uh, just go on the Internet, www.operationunite.co. There's no M on that, okay? It's all one word. Uh, you can go there. We have a Facebook uh page for operation unite we have a uh, youtube channel called operation unite water uh, we send out uh, a weekly email called the drought uh, informer weekly uh, all you have to do is uh, go ahead and send me an email and i'll get you on the list steve baker at operationunite.co uh, very easy to get a hold of we encourage people to call us to let us know what they're doing in different parts of the country and uh, of course we would like to help them as well
0: Terrific. Now, uh, one final question for you, Steve. What What have uh, you thought I was going to ask that I didn't ask today? What What information needs to get out there that I that I failed to ask about?
1: Well, the, the importance. Uh, I mean, we have hinged, We have hit the edges of it. The importance of working together. That's hugely, uh, that's, that's of the utmost importance here. Uh, the reason why we started, the reason why I started Operation Unite is I, I experienced what 9-11 looked like from the, watching the television. And we are wonderful in emergency response in the moment. I also, uh, noticed when Rita Katrina occurred. Again, In the moment, we're out there, we do what it takes, what we need to do to get the job done and help people out. But in the long run, we don't work well together. We blame each other, things like that. So what I'm trying to impress on people through the activities of Operation Unite is we will always have water working together. The important thing is work together. That's why the Know Your Water program is designed the way it's designed. That's why the Neighborhood Water Alliance program is designed the way it's designed. We have a public relationship building program where we're building public responsibility on various projects. I mean, I spoke to one of the mayors down in Florida, and uh, climate change is a very, very real thing in Florida, yet uh, there are still many people that aren't taking it seriously enough and making the correct adjustments in the infrastructure and, and, and and other things to make those improvements. So I I can only uh, reinforce again and again the importance of working together. It's not a polyannic statement. It's an active ingredient. It's what's going to drive us and, and, and provide a huge success in our futures. Without it, you know, life will be different. But uh, working together, that's really the it. Great.
0: Very wise words. Well, thank you again, Steve. You've been absolutely fantastic. Really appreciate your time, especially because you got up so early this morning. So, uh, again, thank you so much, and we'll, uh, we'll be in touch soon. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Dave. You betcha. Bye, Steve. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Steve Baker of Operation Unite and uh, the Know Your Water program. I thought he, he you know, pervades some fantastic information about uh, uh, managing groundwater, making sure you have uh, the, the requisite amount of knowledge needed to make uh, behavioral decisions about, you know, groundwater. Uh, and I, I thought he, that was just really interesting. And, and as drought becomes uh, something that we might have to deal with more and more in terms of uh, climate change i 'm sure that that type of knowledge and that type of information is going to become more and more important to people on wells and even you know, even even utilities that are on groundwater supply i 'm sure they have that type of monitoring capability that they need to, to understand what the impacts are of them pulling water out of that well. So uh, just a, I, th- I thought Steve did a fantastic job, and what a great individual. Uh, uh, he, he's, he's just been uh, – uh, he's, he's, we've actually been in, in communication for uh, six, six months or so, seven months, maybe a little bit longer uh, when I first found out about his program, and we started having some email correspondence, and then uh, it just became a good, good time to have Steve on, so – uh, Steve, thanks so much. Really appreciated your time and uh, appreciate all the knowledge. Um, you know, if, if you want to find out more about Steve and his, um, his programs, uh, you can go to thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 104. That'll have the show notes. It'll have links to Steve's uh, website. It'll have his email address, all that good stuff. Um, and you can also leave comment on the show notes. Uh, you can email me at David at thewatervalues.com. You can tweet at me. Uh, My handle is at DTM1993, and uh, would love to hear what you think about the podcast. You can also sign up for the Water Values newsletter at thewatervalues.com. And then, uh, as I've indicated at the top of the show, Uh, You know, feel free to leave a rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn or whatever podcast directory you listen on. Uh, That would be so, so greatly appreciated and would help others who are interested in learning more about water find the water values podcast. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the water values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.